Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm Emily. And I'm Jamie. And we are here with Believe. Guys, we have been so excited about this episode. <laughs> I can't even begin to describe it. Jamie, our, please. Our, sh- our show notes. <laughs> I can... Uh, we have almost 30 pages of show notes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess... Not, it, not all just It's this not episode. all just this episode, but it's mostly this Mostly episode. this episode. <laughs> Listen... We are really crazy about hauntings. I'm yes. saying we, but <laughs> I am very crazy about hauntings I'm and cryptids. Very excited about cryptids. cryptids. Yes, love cryptids. Yes. Um, so we will see you guys after the music. Yeah, and get ready. Hold on get to your ready. socks. Alrighty, so I'm just gonna jump right into it. Please do. Um, <laughs> just a warning: it's gonna be a long one. Um, so we're going to start with Cape Cod Hauntings, and um, we're going to focus first on the Barnstable House. So the 1716 Barnstable House is said to be the most haunted place on Cape Cod. To those of us today, the Barnstable House may be known by its nickname, the House of Eleven Ghosts. Um, once an inn and restaurant, the Barnstable House currently houses a number of small businesses, some of the Eleventh Ghosts have been known to travel to surrounding establishments as well. Have you ever been there? Um, I think I've passed it. Mm, okay. I don't been. know. I, I've... It's possible. I went on one of those like ghost tour things, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I don't remember where I was. I was young enough to like not really realize where I was. Okay, okay. Um, cool. But yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay, so let's go into the history of the house. Um, early re- records indicate that this house was owned and probably built by James Payne, um, born 1665 and died 1728, grandfather of Robert Treat Payne, a participant at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. At the death of James Payne, his widow, uh, Bethia, I think that's how you pronounce that name. I mean, Bethia? I don't know. Bethia. Um, Beth. Beth. (laughs) Beth. Let's just stick with Beth. Um, Inherited. (laughs) 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 This is is not going to go well. (laughs) I'm just going to mess with you the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, um, Beth. she inherited one half of the house, which is the western half, and one half to, of the lands thereunder. The remainder of the property went to his other heirs. Um, Edmund Howes, from 1699 to 1777, Mr. Howes purchased the property from the Payne family. By 1799, Dr. Savage had become the owner of the pop- property. He was married in 1776 to Hope Doan, daughter of Eliza Elisha Doan, Dr. Savage was, according to Simeon Deum, a very peculiar in his manners, and when the stagecoach was passing, he would ascend a large rock and in spherical, spherical, spherical tones, sepulchral tones, announced himself as. A, oh gosh, <laughs> as a physician. Oh okay. lord. So he would. Um, uh, announced himself as a physician and a surgeon. So he would just pass by and be like, I'm a physician and a surgeon. Did you just see this dude standing up, like, on a rock? Just, I am a physician and a surgeon. <laughs> like, Good on you, bud. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, so Dr. Savage owned and occupied the dwelling until his death in 1831. Mm-hmm. After the passing of Dr. Savage, the house passed to Hope Savage Shaw, daughter of Dr. Savage. 
Hope Zavishar, oh gosh, was also the second wife of Chief, Ju- of Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw, Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and they married in 1828. Hope Shaw had a second claim to fame as she was the stepmother-in-law to, be, to the famed Moby Dick author Herman Melville, who was rumored to have written portions of Moby Dick while residing at the Barnstable House. Which, I like the idea of, like, these ghostly beings or whatever, if they're there, like, you know, it's just, <laughs> are they all about, like, you know, old Abe and, like, his, his uh... <laughs> maybe, maybe, I don't know, uh, oh my um, gosh, the house was sold by Hope Shaw and his brother in 1832 to Abner Davis, after Abner Davis's death in 1939, the property was inherited by his wife, Nancy, and later by their son, Adolphus, a Boston ship owner. During this period, the house was occupied by Captain John Gray, who was believed to still occupy the house. Can I just make a, a general observation? Yeah. All the women have, like, pretty normal names. Oh, yes. Quote-unquote normal. Hope, Nancy. And then you got... Abner. Adolphus. Adolphus. <laughs> Herman. Yeah. And there's some... That's some... I'm... Discrepancy I'm kinda, there. I'm kind of jealous. Like, those are some really... <laughs> pretty cool name <laughs> <laughs> sorry no it's okay it just struck me as i was looking at that yeah, in, the, in the notes i'm like some of these names are not like the others <laughs> we got a very normal james and Ed- mm-hmm. <laughs> all right so now one with the ghosts um the most well-known entity of house is lucy a 10 year old child back in the day or back in the colonial days, it was common to build your homestead over a fresh source of running water. Lucy was playing with a blue ball in a cellar which rolled into the spring that ran beneath the property. You can imagine where this is going, <laughs> of course. Well, Lucy was trying to re- receive her ball, she drowned. Since then, there have been reports that Lucy has been skipping around the dining room when the property was a restaurant and playing with a blue ball. <laughs> Lucy's mother, ever hopeful for her daughter's return, apparently still waits for her quietly, rocking back and forth in her rocking chair. While some reports witnessed the chair rocking on its own uh, in what was formerly known as the Blue Room, the New England Society of Paranormal Investigations recorded an EVP of a woman softly humming in the third floor attic. No. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> Please no. <clears throat> Alrighty. Next up is Edmund Howes who you may remember as an early owner of the house, who hung himself from a nearby tree after losing his entire fortune with the conversion of continental currency to our modern-day dollar. The presence of this ghost has been felt by some, apparently. Perhaps the experience witnessed by most as a woman... Um, was a woman known as Martha, who was remembered as being dressed in a flowing white gown and with a high collar. In the 1970s, a fire broke out in the Barnstable house and smoke was billowing from the third floor windows. Three firemen claimed to have seen her in the window, went to rescue her, and she was nowhere to be found. Um, Another witness reports seeing her standing toward the rear of the parking area after the firemen searched for her. Captain Graves was yet another sea captain to reside in the Barnstable house. The cause of his death is unknown, but there have been reports of his presence in the cellar. Captain Gray um, 
is described as a grumpy presence who will express his unhappiness by slamming doors and can be seen sulking around the cellar. And there are a little bit of conflicting information whether Captain Graves and Captain Gray are the same person. I'm not really sure. When the tavern was open, a almost solid figure carrying trays of drinks dressed in colonial wear would occasionally be seen carrying drinks to their tables. Which, can you imagine, <laughs> for instance, like, oh, you know, I'm going to go and... <laughs> I would assume... <laughs> go and eat. That uh, I would not want to eat at this no. establishment. And then no. immediately vacate the premises. Yes. <laughs> if my drink floated to me. I mean, on the one hand... Well, I, did it float to you? Or, like, you apparently see an almost solid floating. figure carrying trays of drinks to rest in colonial wear. Like, Well, that wouldn't bother me so much because it's New England. That's pretty yeah. typical, right? Well, that's the thing. Like, I would not People have People just thought, dress up like that. Yes. That's, the, that's my concern. <laughs> <laughs> so you just think this is your normal bro on the side of the street. Yeah, well, the, here's the thing. Like, you see, you see people like that all the time. Yeah. But... They don't exist. Like they're not. They're ghosts. Like what happens? Maybe. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Jimmy. Go talk to the next one. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm going to pass this on to Emily, who's going to talk about our next house. Yes, the Burgess house. Um, so that was a long one. You know, you got that really was. A, I know. I got lucked out. Didn't I? Well, I have to talk a lot later, so <laughs> it'll even out eventually. Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so guys, the Burgess house. It's located at 1603 Main Street in Brewster, and it was once the home of Captain William Burgess, who ended up dying aboard the Challenger, which was a clipper ship, after a bout with an illness. After his death, his wife, Hannah Rebecca, lived in the house alone for the next 63 years until her death. Now here's the really interesting thing about Hannah. She received over 50 wedding proposals following her husband's death. Wow. All of which she declined. <laughs> I know, right? Wow. <laughs> um, so supposedly the spirit of Hannah is Hannah Rebecca is said to still live in the in the house and moves artwork around the home. Owners have occasionally heard her footsteps also throughout the property. Hmm. I would freak out if I saw pictures just being shifted in my house, or even if I woke up and my picture was not where I was supposed to put it mm-hmm. or where it was supposed to be. That would bother me. That would that would definitely bother me. Yeah, but that's the Burgess house. Fifty wedding proposals though. Like just take a step for a second. <laughs> She had game. And she Amazing. <laughs> like, wow. I, I mean. Declined them all. Good for you, girl. That's pretty crazy. All right. So for the Orleans Inn, um, and the Orleans Inn is said to be home to at least three spirits that have all died in the inn at different times in history. Hannah, who tends to linger in room four, which, I mean, this is right here. I'm going to avoid any and all. But then you would actually try and stay in these. It would be interesting. Yeah, it would be fun. I would um, um, was a, so um, Hannah was a lady of the nights of the 1920s who was killed by one of her clients at the time when the inn was a brothel. Fred, a bartender, remains in the bar after he ended his own life in the cupola by hanging himself in the 1950s. The third spirit is that of Paul, the dishwasher who killed himself in the basement of the inn. The television show Ghost Hunters and Sci-Fi Network even came to the Orleans Inn to investigate the paranormal activity reports and walked away with recordings and video supporting the ghostly claims, which makes it more of the most exciting places to experience haunted Cape Cod. Thank you. I mean, I drive by the Orleans Inn. Quite frequently. I know. Because I like to go through Orleans to get to places. But I know. Well, like... Well, you can only go through Orleans to get to a lot of places. 
<laughs> but um, well, you know, one way or the other. For those um, of you who haven't been to the Cape, the highway kind of like ends yeah. at a certain point mm-hmm. in Orleans, and you just have to go on what they call a highway, but is essentially just a main road <laughs> up the rest of the way Pretty to the much. top of the Cape. <laughs> That was, I'm, what's up with inns, though? I mean, anything, any, like, hotels, like, they have this, like, spirit energy or something. Or there's so many a lot people, of terrible so things happen. History. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, yeah. there seems like a lot of them, and these are just some. Yeah. Like, this when is, we were doing we, research, we chose... <laughs> there were so many places that have history of, like, here's a ghost, there's a ghost, everywhere's a ghost, ghost. Yes. Right? Yes, it's this just... Is, this is very... Like we could spend hours on just this topic, but we've got cryptids coming up, so yes. <laughs> and clearly, we have a favorite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the fight between ghosts and cryptids. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone's got their preferences. All right. So the last bit in hauntings is actually—it's more of a local legend that I heard when I was a kid, than when I was growing up um, and coming here in the summers. It—it it was something that you know, at the time was really interesting to me because I was crazy about pirates. I love pirates. Golden Age of Piracy. Love it. So this is the local ghost story of Sam Bellamy and Maria Hallett. Some of you may know Sam Bellamy as Black Sam, but we're going to get into that. So Samuel Bellamy was an English pirate who operated in the early 18th century. He is best known as the wealthiest pirate in recorded history and one of the faces of the golden age of piracy. Though his known career as a pirate captain lasted little more than a year, he and his crew captured at least 53 ships. He earned the nickname Black Sam in Cape Cod folklore because, unlike other men of his time, he eschewed wearing a fashionable powdered wig and instead preferred to tie back his long black hair with a simple band. Bellamy was known for his mercy and generosity towards those he captured on his raids. This reputation earned him another nickname, the Prince of Pirates. He likened himself to Robin Hood and his crew calling themselves Robin Hood's men. Well, for, like, can we pause for a second? Yes. Can you imagine wearing a powdered rig while you're, wig while you're raiding? I mean, you would just lose <laughs> that wig. <laughs> like, I love how, like, he's this guy who, you know, is apparently this master of... <laughs> oh, I'm not going Flowing to wear a powdered hair, rig. I've wind. got this, you know, and I, the fact that that's, like... You know, that's a focus is really interesting to me. That's what he got his nickname, Black Sam. Imagine like your like your hair would fall off when you're trying to, you know, steal someone's things like that. Well, I mean if you think about pirates in general, they did some really wacky stuff like Blackbeard and Teach. Everyone used to think that like he was the devil because he had the smoke coming out and it was just him rolling candles in his beard (laughs) so it looked like he was flaming. But uh they they did some interesting stuff. Pirates were very fancy people. So flash. <laughs> uh, but um from what I recall the story between Black Sam and Maria. So Black Sam fell in love with a Cape Cod woman named Maria Hallett when he was visiting Cape Cod to look for some of his family. He wanted to marry her and build a better life for the both of them. When he set sail for the open seas to return to piracy and seek his fortune, Maria promised to wait for him. And Bellamy would visit her whenever he could. But it was during one of those return trips to see Maria that his ship sank. According to historical records, Bellamy's ship, the Widow, was swept up in a violent nor'easter off Cape Cod at midnight on April 26, 1717. The storm drove the ship onto the sandbar shoals in 16 feet of water, about 500 feet from the coast of what is now Wellfleet. 
At 15 minutes past midnight, the mast snapped and drew the heavy-loaded ship into 30 feet of water, where she capsized and quickly sank, taking Black Sam and all but two of the widow's 145-man crew with her. Supposedly, Maria is still waiting for him to this day. There's a song about it that I heard a really long time ago, but I don't really remember how it goes. But um, if you look it up online, I'm sure you can probably find it. But it's kind of creepy, but it talks about their romance. And there is something else to this legend, though, that I want to point out. You see, Maria Hallett isn't a particularly common name for the early 18th century Cape Cod. And there are no records of a woman by that name living in the Wellfleet area in the early 1700s. In fact, local legend might remember her best as Goody Hallett. Now, the name Goody may not actually be a name, but rather a term of address. At one time, it was a respectful way to refer to a married woman of modest means, an abbreviation of the word good wife. There are some stories that say Maria Hallett was already married when she met Sam. He would have needed more money if he wanted to come back and spirit her away from her husband. Either way, though, their love ends the same. Black Sam drowns and Maria is left waiting and wondering if he'll ever return to her. And while no one can quite agree on her name, there is one thing that local legend does see eye to eye on. You see, Maria had another moniker that's been passed down in Cape Cod lore. Around here in the Lower and Outer Cape, she's also called the Witch of Wellfleet. Oh, yes. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so, I love their story. I can't believe I've never heard of this before. I think I've heard of Black Sam like being a like talked about. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't think I knew, like, the whole history behind it. Oh. So that's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Or not the history, the, the lore, the, the, yeah, you know, the, the legend of... Yeah, I first heard it when I was up here when I was a kid. It just always stuck with me as, like, this really interesting bit of Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. Cape Cod folklore that just stuck around. I mean, there's so... This area is so rich in different oh kinds of gosh. legends. But the history that we have The history here. we have, colonial history... Um, you know, indigenous people in the area and their local local history, their mm-hmm. their legends that they've passed down through years. There's so much here and it's such a rich area and there's so much to discover. But this one for me as a kid had always stuck out. Because you know, like pirates, you think the Caribbean, yes. the golden age of pirates, the yeah. Calico Jack, all mm-hmm. of that. And then to know they were up here too. One sink just off the shore. We'd go into Wellfleet. The Wellfleet mm-hmm. Oyster Festival is this weekend, like that's just the coolest thing to me that they were here. They were walking on these yeah. on these shores and doing their stuff with their black hair tied back in a hairband, <laughs> flapping in the breeze, falling in love with someone else's wife. Yeah. And <laughs> God, that's insane. It's, it's such an interesting story. That's Whether or not really how much cool. of it is true, I mean, who knows? But <laughs> it's just I mean, fun it's to still imagine. Really interesting to think about. Um, is that where the widow comes in, or is that like yep. something later? Oh, that's yep. really interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Cryptids. So, cryptids. Here okay. we go. Um, Guys, <laughs> I love cryptids. I said I this at the beginning. Too. I have an entire jean jacket that I have just bedazzled in patches that are like spooky patches, but some of them are cryptid yes. themed. So, like, I have one that's Nessie themed mm-hmm. and I want one that's Bigfoot themed. But, yes. anyways, before I get ahead of myself, mm. what is a cryptid? Some of you may be asking. So, I'm just going to read the Merriam Webster dictionary definition of cryptid. A cryptid is an animal, such as Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster, that has been claimed to exist but never proven to exist. The first known use of the word was in 1983 when it was coined by John E. Wall in a letter to the editor in the summer issue of the newsletter of the International Society of Cryptozoology, Volume 2, Number 2, Page 10. By the way, the ISC is a now defunct organization. By the end of the 1990s, 
that was when it started showing up in dictionaries. So that was a lot to just throw at you, but cryptids, think Sasquatch, think Nessie. Yep. Things that live in local legend, Jersey Devil, stuff like that. Alright. Alrighty, so what is cryptozoology? According to legend, early, <laughs> I'm getting way too ahead of myself. Um, according to leading uh, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, cryptozoology is a study of hidden animals or unexplained life and their mysterious interactions with the known world. Cryptids like the aforementioned Bigfoot have long delighted humankind with their fantastic plausibility, unique features, and propensity to inspire a cult following uh, believers and skeptics alike. While often considered a form of pseudoscience and mythology, cryptozoology continues to draw interest in uncovering the natural mysteries of life, as local legends of unidentified creatures have endeared themselves to the local populations that they haunt. Whether or not these creatures are real or hoax is part of the adventure, and one may undertake to suit curiosity, skepticism, or an amusement for both. End quote. End quote. <laughs> that was a long quote. Yes. Um, um, yeah, this yeah. was just something that I thought was an interesting way of looking at it. So, it's definitely very easy to be skeptical about cryptids. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm highly skeptical about cryptids mm-hmm. in general, but like, I like this line about them. Mm-hmm. So just to put it out there to share with you guys. Open quote. It is often impossible to tell which category an unknown animal actually inhabits until you catch it. Until then, it is a cryptid. I really like that because, it, like, as we were talking, um, the uh, giant squid, for instance, that yeah. was this, you know, insane idea of, you know, this this mythical creature that couldn't possibly exist. And then <laughs> it was no recently, I mean, it was recent too. I think it was within the last 20 years or so. And they actually out, found yeah. an actual giant, giant squid. squid. Yeah. Obviously, not as big as, you know, what well, Lord called it. But, um, but it was it was a, so like yeah. the early 1700s mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, my biggest thing too is. We know the surface of our moon more than we know the deepest depths of our oceans, and I can like the amount of what is down there. Yeah, I'm like, especially. I was like, I was really, really obsessed with. I was little. Um, is like the um, the um, the abyss. Like, yeah. Anything down there because everything down there is so strange and otherworldly, mm. and you know, I mean, if something like a freaking. You know, a fish that has a lantern, a fish. lantern. You know, in in front of it to try and catch things with these giant teeth, like that oh exists. My gosh, I love that fish. Yeah, it is so creepy and cool. Yeah, so like English. if that exists, like you never really know. So I really like the idea of cryptozoology. I think it's good to be skeptical, but I also think it's really There's this whole idea of discovery is really really cool to yeah. me. Like you know, there's. You know, some of the, you know, it, I just, I don't know, I think it's really cool. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, there's roots yeah. in everything, and there's reasons people have accounts of things in certain areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't even know what's out there in yeah. certain parts of the world that we don't travel into, so mm-hmm. who's to say there isn't some really bizarre-looking creature that, yeah. to us, might seem monstrous, but is actually just something we haven't discovered yet. Yeah. I mean, we think we've, we've been everywhere, done everything, the internet connects us all, and Google knows everything. Can I say Google? I think I can say Google. But, like, um, leaving that in there. The internet knows everything. The internet knows everything. But, um, (laughs) I mean, there's still places that are untouched, like the ocean. So, there's there's stuff to be had from learning a little bit about cryptids. And it is kind of amusing to go into the woods and start looking around for them. I mean... 
there's there's some interesting stuff in our area oh, guys yeah. cryptids are all over the united states and the rest of the world but we're focusing we, just in new england yes. and really we're only picking a couple we are like touching on this there is so <laughs> i had to <many>. limit <laughs> there is a cryptid for everyone yes <laughs> so uh. Find your favorite, make a little stuffed animal, and then hug it to your chest because... Also show us because that <laughs> would be really us. cool. <laughs> that would be really cool, actually. I would like a Nessie stuffed animal. That would be cute. Yes. Or a Kraken. I really or like for Kraken. me, we're going to start with Champy. Yes. Um, so please. this is Champy. Champy um, is our... Uh, they, they, a lot of... Um, everything that I've saw, they related it to the American version of Nessie. Hmm. So... I um, I went to college in Bridgewater, or um, in um, <laughs> I did actually. I did go to college in Bridgewater, but before I went to college in Bridgewater, um, I went to college um, in Burlington, Vermont, and just for a year, um, I I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, and then I decided against it, but. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was up there, I learned about Champy, which I had never heard of until I got there, and it's just an iconic really thing. I like, had never heard of Champy. Every, yes, yeah, and like they have a um, there's a uh, there's a museum down there. There's like a um, aquarium kind of a museum, and while it's not like necessarily saying Champy exists, they use okay. Champy as an example for like cleaning up the um, the lake that yeah. they have there. So. Um, I'll give you a good definition of champ. Um, Champy is the name of a lake monster said to live in Lake Champlain, a 20 or 125-mile-long body of fresh water shared by New York and Vermont, with a portion extended, extending into Quebec, Canada. The legends of the monster is considered a draw for tur- tourism in Burlington, Vermont, and uh, Plattsburgh, New York areas. Allegedly seen by hundreds of witnesses over the years, description of Champ vary, but most suggest a creature between 20 and 80 feet long with a series of distinct humps and a serpentine body, which again, like is very, very much so like Nessie. Um, some say the head looks like a snake or a dog. Others have speculated that it's a relative of the, the Pleosaur, and, or, uh, which is an extinct group of aquatic, aquatic reptiles. It was uh, one of those dinosaurs. Um, I essentially, I would, I would equate it to a long neck, uh, dinosaur, right? But, um, instead of, uh, tall legs, it has fins. Okay. That's a really good example of, like, okay. how I can describe it. Um, let's see here. The, the first recorded sighting of the monster took place when, um, Samuel de Champlain came upon the lake in July of 1609. During this expedition, the French explorer noted in his journal sighting of a 20-foot serpent with a horse-shaped head and a body as thick as a keg, <laughs> which I don't really know what a keg is, means in this indication. Interesting. A, a keg, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> when we get to the end yes. of this, I need to talk to you about this yes. because this is interesting. Yes. So, okay. um, and there's so much more to go into it. I really took a very brief um, descriptor of it. Um, so in 2003, a team during research for the Discovery Channel picked up a high-pitched ticking and chirping noise, much like what a dolphin or whale makes. But in so, a lake. but in a lake, a freshwater lake. Um, I yes, maybe question mark question mark. I think it is. Um, let me just do a quick, quick Google search. <laughs> Even um, librarians see they teach us oh, how again, to seek out information. A quick in internet school. search. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I feel like yes, if they're calling it a lake monster, then it must um, be like freshwater. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Though there are freshwater dolphins, aren't there? I thought. Uh, I think I totally there are. It's my potential. Um, oh. So I, I mean, there's so much more to go into this. <laughs> Because awesome. there's like there's apparent videos of like people seeing really? it. Yeah, there's some very grainy video that came out recently. I think probably around that time um, that showed someone uh, like mm-hmm. facing down down in the water like by their boat, and you, it looks like you know it looks like a seal or something. It looks like something just goes right past them. Oh. And, yeah. Um, but it's it's big local legend. I mean, it's something that again, it's it's like a, you know, it's a it's a culture there. It's like this is people rally it like around. It's like a little Champion. mascot kind. It is. Of. It's like a, a really he's turned cool into a mascot. mascot. Yeah, but like Lake Champlain in general is just it's an iconic place, especially mm. in Burlington, yeah. where um, where I stayed in. Like, know you know, it's general. yeah, um, but. You know, there's all these questions about, like, where does Champ go when it freezes over and it's thick enough for you to walk on? Like, you know, from, I, you know, yeah. I joked for, with my friends that we were going to walk from, from Burlington to New York because you could do that. Yeah. It was frozen thick yeah. enough that you could just walk yeah. <laughs> that oh my far. Gosh. Um, but, yeah, it was um, it was really interesting to read up upon and, and go back to it because I really hadn't thought about Champ in a while. That's awesome. Um, but, I'm so glad that you you did Champy. Yes, it's it, it was really fun and there's like there's it's again there's there's a whole group following there's apparently a podcast that they that they go into it and anyway. It's a very very well followed uh little cryptid but Have any of you lived in in that area? Could you tell us more yes, about Champy? Yes, let us know. Um, oh my gosh. I mean, only being there for a year, I just couldn't get enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, really cool, though. Yeah, it oh, was. Man. It was really just. I mean, yeah. That's <laughs> it's awesome. Really cool. Very, very interesting. So, and the fact that like a, um, you know, the uh, the aquarium there uses Champagne as an example for yeah for keeping Lake Champagne playing clean. That was what a, a big great thing thing to do like, yeah that really was such a fantastic idea to yeah. use to I use something th- like that yeah i think it said like keep it clean for champy or something That's like so it was cute. like you know just essentially uh, going against any sort of littering yeah. or anything but it was really cool it <laughs> was really really neat yeah. oh man i wonder what the most recent sighting has been like if it was that 2003 i don't know if it was, if it was 2003 even than that, but... that was one i that i could find um okay but there's a ton of people that are just who have seen There's, yes, something. Yes, who have seen something or claim to see something or, you know, taking yeah, yeah, yeah. grainy photos or something. Or, That's um, so neat. Yeah. I mean, it, clearly, like, there's probably some that are hoaxes, but you have to imagine maybe one or two saw something odd. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, they're very well. I mean, maybe there is a freshwater dolphin in there. But yeah, there could be, like, a monster. Or just a very big eel. Yeah. ate a lot. Just one? Just a single eel. Listen, <laughs> I'm tired. It's poor, been a long week. Thing. You're tired. I know it's been a long week. Uh, we won't go a, into that on this episode. Yeah. We've got a lot more to go though, so <laughs> buckle we, up. We, is, it, is it a lot more? I don't know if it's. A lot. I don't know. We're we'll gonna see. stay on the lake monster train. Though. Yes. And uh, well, serpent train. So I'm just gonna jump right into it. Do it. <clears throat> Clear my throat, get ready, take a sip of my tea too while I'm at it. But, uh. Alright. For hundreds of years, sea serpents have been spotted along the coast of Maine. 
Sightings are reported as far back as the birth of our nation. One of the earliest accounts dates from 1779, given by Edward Preble. A history may know Edward better as Commodore Preble, a U.S. naval officer who served with great distinction during the First Barbary War. He also led American attacks on the city of Tripoli and was responsible for forming the officer corps that would later lead the U.S. Navy in the War of 1812. But let's go back in time to when Preble was just a young man, serving on the gunship Protector. It was a clear, calm day in June. You know the kind if you've lived in New England by the shore. The type of summer day when the water seems almost still and a warm breeze ruffles the hair on the back of your neck. Though we did not know it yet, our country was midway through the first year that would mark a number of setbacks for us during the Revolutionary War. 18-year-old Ensign Edward Preble stood on board the deck of the Protector while sat in Penobscot Bay. I like to imagine he was enjoying the feeling of the sun on his face as he looked out at the water. Maybe he let his eyes trail over the cresting waves that gently lapped at the side of the ship. Now picture, if you will, the moment he noticed something floating in the water. How his eyes probably stuttered over the large, motionless shape sitting so very near the ship. What must have gone through his head as he tried to make sense of what he was seeing? It was too large to be a branch. Too large to be a particularly big fish, either. Though they can get quite big around here, can't they? Mm -hmm. I can't fathom the mental Olympics he must have gone through to make sense of what his eyes were showing him. After all, it's not an ordinary leap of logic to think that a long, dark shape in the water is a legendary creature. But that's what he saw. On that summer day in 1779, Edward found himself looking at a sea serpent. After observing the creature for some time, Edward was ordered by his captain into a longboat with instructions to shoot the animal. Edward shoved off and began to navigate the boat towards the creature. In his account, he described it as being thick as a barrel. And when he drew closer, it raised its serpentine head a okay. good 10 feet above the water. You can see why I said we need to talk. <laughs> wow. But wait for it. Okay. It gets even better. All right. So Preble stared at the creature, and the creature stared back. Now you might think you can guess how this is going to end, right? The creature charges, Preble valiantly defends the longboat, maybe someone says some pithy one-liner. <laughs> But that's not how that happened. This is not Hollywood. So, according to Preble, there was no cat and mouse standoff between the boat and the serpent. Instead, the serpent just turned around and began to swim slowly away. As he'd been ordered to do, Edward fired around in its direction, which had the predictable effect of only causing it to swim faster away before ultimately disappearing completely unharmed. So, Cassie has been sighted many times since then. Here's another well-reported instance that I found, and it happened on June 5th, 1958. Ole Mickelson and Amar Hergard were on their boat in Casco Bay, five miles off Cape Elizabeth. The sun had just come up when, through the morning haze, they saw a large shape coming towards them. At first, they thought it was a submarine, but as it got closer, Mickelson and Hergard were able to tell that it was indeed a living thing. The creature had a long neck and a broad head which it held up out of the water. It stopped about 125 feet from their boat, and though they could not see its eyes, they knew it was looking at them. In a 1985 interview with cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, Mickelson recounted his encounter with the animal, claiming that he won't soon forget it. Mickelson said that the creature he and Hergard saw was brown, with a lighter underbelly. It had a forked tail like a mackerel, only it was horizontal like a whale. 
As it sat there in the water looking them over, the Portland lightship blew its fog signal. Each time it sounded, Cassie turned its head in that direction, as if it was listening. Understandably unnerved, Hairguard was ready to cut their fishing nets and make a run for the lightship. But Cassie came no closer, and, after about 45 minutes, swam around the two men in a half circle before continuing south. Other reports of Cassie have continued throughout the years. On July 12, 1818, several people on Weeks Wharf said they saw it. In 1836, the schooner Fox saw something slithering through the surf near Mount Desert Rock. It, too, held its head out of the water. On August 5, 1905, a 60-foot mottled brown creature with a snake-like head circled a sailboat for 10 minutes off Wood Island. Major General H.C. Merriam and his sons were on board and said that the creature lifted its head four feet above the surface. The steamer Bonita saw Cassie again in Casco Bay on August 20, 1910. The people on board said it looked to be about 80 feet long and had spots. Cassie sightings have even been reported as far as Eastport, back in the 1930s and 1940s. More recently, a woman reported seeing something definitely Cassie-like off Bidford in 2002. Oh, and by the way, it was Coleman who gave the creature its name Cassie. Coleman believes Cassie to be a mammal because of the whale-like way it's said to swim, as opposed to the side-to-side wriggling that would indicate it was some kind of snake. Whether she's a cousin of Nessie or entirely unique, this sea serpent spooked even the most weathered of sailors when sighted on the bay. Even years later, her witnesses can clearly recall her appearance. Whatever Cassie is, there's no question that she is a beloved part of Maine legend. But let's take a look now at a creature who is a little closer to the part of New England that we call home. We're headed about 110 miles south to Gloucester. They told me of a sea serpent or snake that lay coiled up like a cable upon a rock at Cape Ann, a boat passing by with two English on board and two Indians. They would have shot the serpent, but the Indians dissuaded them saying that if he were not killed outright, they would be in danger of their lives. These words were written by John Jocelyn in 1641 in his An Account of Two Voyages to New England. He's describing a sea serpent seen three years earlier by passerbys off the coast of Gloucester, Mass. Sea serpent sightings have a long history in New England, dating back to 1638. You just heard us talking about Cassie. But now, let's move on to a creature who makes its home in Massachusetts waters. The Gloucester Sea Serpent is unique in that it has actually made the history books. First sightings date back to the 17th century, but reports have continued through the 20th. Although not as widely known as its Scottish counterpart in Loch Ness, the Gloucester Sea Serpent has clearly left its mark on our little corner of the states. In fact, it caused such a stir that official interviews were conducted throughout the area to confirm that its eyewitnesses were not undergoing mass hysteria. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we kind of have a reputation for that in this area. Yeah, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) So according to records from the Linnaean Society of New England, the Gloucester Sea Serpent is a creature of habit and makes appearances according to a seasonal schedule along Cape Ann and the surrounding harbors. Perhaps one of the most interesting pieces of information I came across while digging into the story was from the Portland Public Library. It's called Report of a Committee of the Linnaean Society of New England relative to a large marine mammal supposed to be serpent seen near Cape Ann, Massachusetts in August 1817, published by the Linnaean Society of New England in 1817. That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. Um, It's a primary source document that contains the historic proceedings from that full court investigation of the sightings. I'm going to read the first page and then pick out some key points. 
You can read the report online for yourself, by the way, as it was preserved through a partnership between the Portland Public Library and the Internet Archive. So, okay, here it goes. <clears throat> In the month of August 1817, it was currently reported on various authorities that an animal of very singular appearance had been recently and repeatedly seen in the harbor of Gloucester, Cape Ann, about 30 miles distant from Boston. It was said to resemble a serpent in its general form and motions, to be of immense size and to move with wonderful rapidity, to appear on the surface of the water only in calm and bright weather, and to seem jointed or like a number of buoys or casts following each other in a line. In consequence of these reports, at a meeting of the Linnaean Society of New England, holden at Boston on the 18th day of August, the Honorable John Davis, Dr. Jacob Bigelow, and Francis C. Gray Esquire were appointed a committee to collect evidence with regard to the existence and appearance of any such animal. The following report made by that committee is now published by order of the Society. Now, clearly, these men took their job very seriously. You can tell just by the questions that they asked. When did you first see this animal? How often and how long at a time? At what times of the day? At what distance? How near the shore? And those were just the first five. There were 25 questions in total. I think my favorite is number 25. State any other remarkable facts. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what could be more remarkable than a sea serpent, but they definitely were covering all their bases. Yeah, it's just a sea serpent. I just, mean, just, you know, I see it all the time. It lives in my backyard. That sounds very boring. Listen, I have one in my bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> so Lance and Nash documented the testimonies of people who said that they saw the creature. Nash seemed like a very pleasant fellow. In his letter to Davis, Bigelow, and Gray, he writes, you request my assistance in collecting evidence relative to a strange marine animal that has appeared in the harbor in this place, and I have most cheerfully complied with your request. The subject is calculated to excite much interest at home and abroad. He adds in his own two cents about the creature as he observed it himself on August 14th for nearly a half hour. According to Nash, the animal's motion was vertical, and at its nearest, it drew within 250 yards of him. He observed it twice through a spyglass and at other times with his naked eye. He was certain that the creature was so long that he could not see both the head and the tail in one view with the spyglass. He saw eight distinct portions, though he admits that more may have been visible, and concludes that he believes the animal to be straight and that its apparent bunches were caused by its vertical motion. So, those of you trying to picture this, picture like an inchworm doing the little inchy thing that they do, rather than a cobra doing its little sidewindy thing that they do. That's, that's what we mean by vertical motion. All right. The testimony at Amos' story is the first one reported in Nash's letter. He spotted the creature for the first time on August 10th between 12 and 1 in the afternoon. Amos was on the shore of the harbor just southeast of 10 Pound Island when the creature's head came out of the water. It had a head shaped like a sea turtle and carried it about 10 to 12 inches above the surface of the water. Amos observed the creature for about an hour and a half, and at its nearest, it came within 20 rods of him. Rods, when converted into feet, is about 330 feet away. Amos goes on to say that the creature moved very quickly, and by his reckoning, it covered a mile or two in three minutes. On that particular day, he did not see more than 10 or 12 feet of the serpent's body. But on a later encounter, when he saw the same creature lying perfectly still extended in the water, he judged it to be at least 50 feet in length. This second sighting took place earlier in the morning at about 7, but Amos was able to tell that the creature was dark brown in color, and when the sun shone on it, the reflection was bright. Its body, according to him, 
was about the size of a man. Solomon Allen was next on Nash's list. In his account, Allen said that the creature he observed had the head of a rattlesnake, but that its head was nearly as large as a horse's. Hmm. He confirmed what Mr. Story had claimed about the creature's girth, calling it the size of a half barrel. When the serpent sank beneath the water, Allen observed that it seemed to go straight down and then pop up at 200 yards from where it had gone under within two minutes. He also reported it being dark brown and scaly. And no, it did not have any spots. Epps Ellery, a shipmaster, added in his account that when the creature turned, it did so quickly, forming the shape of a staple. As it approached its tail, its head came near its body and then ran parallel with the tail. When considering this against the accounts which describe the creature turning and forming a C-shape, I can only picture it as an Ouroboros, the ancient symbol of a serpent eating its own tail. There seems to be a general consensus in the sightings that the creature was thick as a barrel, at least 40 feet long, it moved with a vertical motion, held its head about 10 inches above the water, and was brown. Matthew Gaffney, however, had a different opinion, stating that the creature he saw had a white belly and nearly white head. Gaffney, though, unlike Story, Alan, and Ellery, decided it was a fantastic idea to shoot at the creature. Oh, good. Yep. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm going to read what Gaffney says about himself and then just let that sink in for a second. My gun carries a ball of 18 to the pound, and I suppose there is no person in town more accustomed to shooting than I am. You suppose. Right. Well, Mr. Gaffney was in a boat with his brother Daniel and a Mr. Augustine M. Weber. They were about 30 feet from the serpent when Matthew fired at the creature's head. He took good aim, he said, and had a good gun. He believed that he must have hit the creature as it turned towards the boat immediately and started coming right at him. It didn't ram the boat, though, but instead sunk straight down under the boat, reappearing about 100 yards later. One interesting thing from Gaffney's testimony that I'd like to point out is his answer to the question, did he appear more shy after you had fired at him? To which Gaffney replied, he did not, but continued playing as before. I think it's important to note that these accounts were given by men who sound as if they were regular members of the community. Some were sailors and even captains. They were well-versed in all things related to living by the sea, as I think it's safe to say many New Englanders are who are from the area. I want to read you my favorite testimony, which comes from Sewell Toppen, captain of the Laura. That on the Thursday morning, the 28th day of August, at about 9 o'clock a.m., about two miles or two and a half miles east of the eastern point of Cape Ann, being becalmed, I heard one of my men call to the man at the helm, what is this coming towards us? Being engaged forward, I took no further notice till they called out again. I then got on top of the deck clode, at which time I saw a singular kind of animal or fish, which I had never before seen, pass by our quarter at a distance of about 40 feet, standing along the shore. I saw a part of the animal or fish 10 or 15 feet from the head downwards, including the head. The head appeared to be about the size of 10 fallon key and six inches above the surface of the water. It was of a dark color. I saw no tongue, but heard William Somerby and Robert Bragg, my two men who were with me, call out, look at his tongue. The motion of his head was sideways and quite moderate. The motion of the body up and down. I have seen whales very often. His motion was much more rapid than whales or any other fish I have ever seen. He left a very long wake behind him. He did not appear to alter his course in consequence of being so near the vessel. I saw him much less time than either of the others, and not 
in so favorable a position to notice his head. I have been to sea many years, and never saw any fish that had the least resemblance to this animal. Judging from what I saw out of the water, I should judge the body was about the size of a half-barrel in circumference. We're going to move on from the Gloucester Sea Serpent, but I want to leave you with one last observation from one of Toppin's men. William Summerby had the chance to get a good look at the creature as it passed by the Laura. So good, in fact, that he saw its eyes. They were, apparently, very bright and very dark, almost black, and the size of the eye of an ox. So do you think that, like, Cassie and, what was this one? The Gloucester, the Gloucester Sea Serpent. Sea Serpent. And Champy. And Champy. And... There are some unique similarities. Yeah, like... Keg-like. <laughs> brown. It's, like... So, let's let's speak on... So, if these exist, right, are mm-hmm. they all related? Same... Like, like you... Same like, ancient ancestors? Or, like, you know, related in a way that maybe different types of monkeys are. Like, do you think that they could be... I mean, and then even going, you know, uh, into, into Nessie, like, it, it seems like a... I don't know. Could there be? But, on that same note, uh-huh. do you know the trivia fact that there is no such thing as a fish? Oh, yes, I've heard this. <laughs> so, fish is actually just, like, a broad general term that we use yes. in our vernacular day-to-day speech to describe mm-hmm. that animal that you see that lives in the water mm-hmm. and swims with fins. But they're Most things are not, not like, closely related. related. Yeah. Like a whale is probably more closely related to a black and white spotted milk cow <laughs> than it is to the fish you see swimming in your fish yeah. tank. Mind blowing, isn't it? It's crazy. And so, like, if we equate that to ours, I'm. And another thing too, I I would assume that like you know, so so again, if these exist, the there has to be at least two. At least two. Unless they're They've just been indefinitely around alive, <laughs> yeah. Like, if if we want to put more logic into it, I I would like to I, the idea of like you know there's at least two of them out there, yeah. possible of re, po- possibly reproducing. Yeah, and and, and that's spreading. why there's so yes, and that's why there's so many reports of it mm-hmm. throughout the years. Yeah, because I have a hard time believing it's just one the whole time. That for me is like. Uh, I I agree with that. Yeah, I like, mean, I, you know, I, I think that, I don't know. And I could see how, on the skeptical side of things, maybe they just saw, like, a really big eel or a really big sea snake, right? True. And it freaked him out. Mm-hmm. I can see how that can happen because, you know, you know the lakes around here. They're pitch oh, yeah. black. Yeah. Like, with the muck at the bottom. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're swimming out over once your feet leave the ground. Oh, no. There could be anything down there, and there really is. If you go fishing in the water, you can pull out an eel that feels like dragging a tractor tire. And they're massive. They're as thick as a full-grown man's leg sometimes. That is a keg, though. Not a keg. Or, or a barrel. A leg. <laughs> Only a leg. I was trying to but imagine, see, like, 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 how wide is a keg? Like, like I'm, I'm trying to, like, or a barrel. Like, it's like, you know. They're it's, big. They're big. It doesn't seem as big as like I would imagine it being, though. Well, think about the other account that said the size of a man. Yes. The, the average schmo. Now, typically back then they were much smaller, mm. but the average schmo six feet. is six feet, kind of thicker, mm. pro- over 150 pounds probably on yeah. average. So trying to wrap your arms around something like that, like even me, I'm, I'm pretty small, but if something <laughs> was the size of me... 
I would be severely alarmed. That is very alarming. <laughs> if there was I'm anything, I'm not that saying it's that. not. I'm just, you know, I'm like, oh, it's gotta be huge. I'm like, oh, it's just thick as a keg. That's, that's <laughs> but it's still really thick. cool. All things considered, yeah. it's pretty. Th- I like the idea big. though that yeah. like they're all similar color, which makes sense again if it's a lake creature mm-hmm. that they're similar colors because yes. they blend in with their environment. Yeah. Well, Which, it makes me think of like seals or you know things like that, kind of yeah. like a grayish, tanny kind of color. But when you think about it, prey tends to be what blends into the environment. Things at the top of the food chain, not as much. Mm, I mean, you got sharks. Yeah, somewhat. So, but they're also kind of less blendy. Yeah, and you get the different coloration between male and female creatures. That's right. Males tend to be flashier. Females less flashy. If these are less flashy, what do the males look like? <laughs> is green. <laughs> green. But you can see how like these things came around and dragons, different yeah. stories, like all all across the globe. And these are in one tiny corner of the states, I just know, in New very, England. Very, very tiny. <laughs> it's so neat to see the overlap. Yeah. I thought, just listening to what you were saying about Champy, and then like, mm-hmm. these accounts from people who... I mean, they had to be put through a trial because people thought they were hysterical. Sea captains. I mean, for those of you who don't live in this area, when you live by the water in a small New England town, certain people hold a lot of weight. Oh, yeah. And for us, back in the day when we were all wearing bonnets and, like, (laughs) churning our butter in little cells. Sea captains. They brought food. They brought, you know, knowledge. They were important people. Sailors, important Mm -hmm. people. Like, these were not... You know, Joe Schmo who sat down at the edge of the dock every day with his, you know, feet in the water and daydreaming. These were men who grew up on the sea, Mm -hmm. lived by the sea, who had spent all their lives probably in this area or around areas like this. Yeah. They probably weren't men who scared easily, I imagine. I mean, one even shot at the the Gloucester season. He's like, listen, I am the best shot in this town. I'm just gonna sit here and what must have gone through this man's mind? I'm trying to think about it. Like, was he trying to just impress his friends? Yeah. Like, listen, well, listen or maybe bros. he was horrified. Maybe he was like, oh my gosh, like maybe. there's this thing. I mean, I get Preble like, shooting at like Cassie because he was ordered to do it. Yeah. I understand. What was he that. gonna do? Be like, but no, like, sir, I'd like to come back on board. No, no but like the, you know, yeah, the the ones that they're just like they're, but the other they're one, just shooting at him in this him tiny like, little boat. Like my yeah. impression was, the boat was very small. Like it wasn't oh. a big boat. It was just him and his friends out for this little day roll. <laughs> and there's the thing. And there's this other account in this book of another guy who was actually nearby and saw him shoot at the thing. He's like, I saw him standing on the boat and shooting at the thing, and I saw it go under and pop up. I'm like, dude. Well, uh, the idea, the multiple accounts thing is really, really interesting to me. Yeah. Like, that's just, that's not just one person who saw this. Yeah. And these are just some of the accounts. Yeah. These there are, are like, so many. Oh, yeah. oh that's the thing. Like, thing. I really limited mine down. Like, yeah. I really, I could have gone, gone on, like, the amount of reports that people found. Yeah. You know, or like, oh, you know, this these pictures and all these, you know, the, like, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. This um, was like a 50 page document. <laughs> this court thing i only went through the very beginning of it to read these in other areas i guess it it relates the gloucester sea serpent to nessie Mm. and talks a little bit more about that but like all these people all these people saw something Mm. you know whether it was a really big stick and they were undergoing mass hysteria (laughs) or if it's something that lives in the lake i mean that's just really cool to think about it's really interesting it is 
Alright. But moving away from the lake. Yeah, let's let's, let's move away let's, from the lake. Let's get the this, water let's, horror let's, uh, out of the way. Stick, on, stick with the land for now. Um, oh, ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. So we're going to talk about the Dover Demon. Um, so the Dover Demon of Dover, Massachusetts, shocking, um, was puzzled, has puzzled an entire town in the 1970s when cited on four different occasions from unrelated eyewitnesses in the span of just two days. So just reading through this, just keep in mind, this happened within two days. <laughs> um, a thorough investigation by our team of four or by a team, not our team. I wish we had a team of four cryptozoologists. Well, you, me, and... <laughs> yeah. Um, still um, still leaves many questions unanswered about this cryptid's intriguing presence that has yet to occur again. Despite its isolated appearances, the Dover has... Or the Dover Demon is a New England native and a local legend worth retelling. So, on April 21st, 1977... Bill Bartlett and his two friends, Mike Mazzocca and Andy Brody, were cruising around on around the small town of Dover, Massachusetts. So let's just set the stage for you. It's 10.30 p.m. The road that Bill and his friends are on is one of those typical New England roads flanked by woods and fields and snaking its way in winding curves. <laughs> That's not um, terrifying at all. No, not at all. <laughs> well, I mean, for us, I, for, for us me, it's not. For me, it's like, oh, this is just everyday. This thing. is just the road. <laughs> yeah. So, as Bill begins to drive down Farm Street, he noticed an animal climbing over a stone wall to the left of the road. It froze in place, much like a deer, as the headlights illuminated it. Its eyes were glowing orange, resembling glass marble set in its melon-shaped head, which was as big as its body. That's a huge head. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit. Uh, wow. Um, a body that was decidedly undeer-like. According to Bill, the creature looked like it had a baby's body with long arms and legs. That's disturbing on That's a high level. That's absolutely terrifying. Um, it apparently had no fe- facial features, and its skin was the color like a peach. Again, terrifying. White peach, <laughs> like, pink peach. <laughs> oh, right? Right? Well, I, I, would, I would assume. Just the, peach, peach. Pink, peach, peach, peach. Like yeah. the Crayola crayon. Yeah. As the car raced past the creature, Bill could see that it was clutching onto the rocks with its long, spindly fingers. His friends were talking. His friends were, of course, talking. And he didn't notice the creature, which... I, if I saw something like this and I turned around and my friends weren't paying attention, I would have been so mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, put this thing in reverse and <laughs> I uh, want all of you to look at it. <laughs> I would assume by now. I would assume that like it ran away at that point, but like still, I mean, oh, gosh. It's so can you imagine that, for instance? Like you're driving a car, your friends are right beside you, you're paying attention to the road. And at most, you might expect to see a deer, a deer, maybe a raccoon. Instead, you see something that defies all logic. Like, <laughs> no, no, it's that's that's really, really screwy. Something um, with its head in the same size as its body, with a baby, long arms. I'm really confused about that. I'm very. I'm how when I was reading this stuff, it was like. There's pictures. If you look it up yeah, online, there's pictures, guys, yeah. there's like Strange New England um, and different different mm-hmm. websites have the Dover, yeah, Dover Demon. It's pictures a very distinct looking. It, yeah, it looks a very specific way. Um, 
So Bill, Bill went to drop off his friends before heading home to draw a picture of what he witnessed. Later that evening, 15-year-old John Baxter was driving home, or was coming home from uh, his girlfriend's Kathy Cronin's house. At around 12.30 a.m., he reached the intersection of Miller Hill Road and Farm Street when he noticed something, someone about 150 feet away walking toward him, which again, was apparently walking on two feet. Yeah. Because he imagined, yep. so that's, again, anything that's humanoid like that is terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. It's too human-like. Um, so John could see that this person had an unusually large head. He thought it might be M.G. Bouchard, a younger boy who lived on the street. As John got closer, he called out to, out to him, but there was no reply. John and the figure, figure continued, to, continued to approach one another until finally the figure stopped. I was about 15 feet away when I stopped and it stopped, said John in an interview with the Boston Globe. We just stood there, and I was looking at it, and I'm sure it was looking at me. I could barely see the shape of it. I said one more time, who's that? Trying to get a better look, Baxter took one step forward and the figure darted off to the left, running down a shadow or shallow woody, wooded gully and up the opposite bank. He could hear the thing making its way through the brush. Curious to discover who or what it was, John quickly followed behind it, reaching the bottom of the embankment. He could see on the other side of he or the embankment he could see on the other side of the brook. Now, he could clearly see the outline of the creature's body. As John later said, all these thoughts going through my mind, you know? What is this? A monkey maybe? As I was looking really close, there I could see the eyes. It was looking at me. I just stared at it for another few minutes. That's when John began to feel very uncomfortable. I got all these feelings that I was thinking to myself, or wanting to spring or whatever, you know. And so I backed up the bank kind of fast, and my heart started to beat really, really fast. He ran to Farm Street and got a ride home. That night, he drew a picture of the creature he'd seen. You can probably guess that it, too, had gluing eyes and strongly resembled the thing that Bill Bartlett had encountered. Again. Mm. (laughs) All within the same night. And same street, too. Yeah, Farm Street. I want to go to Farm Street now. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. The next night around midnight, 18-year-old Will Tainter was driving his girlfriend's Abby Brabham home. While on Springdale Ave, Abby saw something at the edge of the bridge on the left-hand side of the road. As I looked at it, it kind of looked a minute like an ape, she claimed. And then I looked at the head, and the head was very big, and it had a very weird head. It had bright green eyes, and the eyes just glowed like... Like they were looking exactly at me. (laughs) Abby assumed that the creature's eyes might have been reflecting on the car's headlights in a phenomenon known as eye shine or retroflexion. Retroflexion depends on the uh, tapetum luxidum, also known as a bright carpet, uh, a mirror-like reflective tissue around the the retina of the animal's eye. Essentially, light rays that enter the eye are returned in that direction from where they came, and the tapetum lucidum gives the eye a second chance to absorb as much light reflected by the retina. Um, the, the light is not absorbed 
It's remitted and gives rise to an eerie glow or an eye shine. Unlike animals, humans lack this reflective layer, so when bright lights hit our eyes, it's or um, like the light from a flashlight, we don't see any sort of reflection. So that's a fun <laughs> fun trivia fact for you. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. Like an- another idea of that too is um, whether or not like monkeys have a similar thing, um, just because you know. Do they have eyeshine? Yeah. Do they have eyeshine kind of thing? Sure do. That'd be a good way. I know sheep's eyes do because I dissected a sheep eye when I was in mm. school once at like a go away into the middle of the woods type mm. camp in middle school that they sent all the kids to go play Lord of the Flies essentially. Oh my gosh. I have stories about that. <laughs> I'll tell that another time. But yeah, it's it's this really neat thin membrane. Very cool. very interesting. Hmm. I like to make my cat's eyes do it. Just like kind of glance a light oh off gosh. and see the the little like glowing yeah. orbs in the dark. That's so cool. <laughs> Abby described the creature as having a tan, hairless body and featureless watermelon-shaped head. Will only saw the creature for a brief moment while attached on the road. Both of them thought, um, fought, both of them though compared it in size to a goat. When Bill Bartlett realized that other people had seen the same creature he had, he ran off copies of his drawing and started to hand them out. He hoped he might find others who could uh, corroborate his story. The Boston Globe reported that over the next month several local papers ran or reported that over the next month and several local papers ran stories about the sightings on may 16th the globe and herald ran their stories about dover demon elevating bill's experience to big news so let's talk about some of the theories on what the dover demon might have been i love these these are yes <laughs> Um, so first, there are a number of people who are that the Dover Demon, or people who believe, wow, can't speak tonight. Um, they believe that the Dover Demon bears a strong resemblance to aliens witnessed in UFO sightings. It also has many similarities to Manigishi, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce that, a creature in the Lore or the Cree nation of Eastern Lore Canada. Of Lore of the Cree, sorry. I made a type. Um, there is the possibility that what Bill and the other saw was not, was an undiscovered natural species, some mutation of a hybrid that has not been cataloged yet by scientists. And one final thought on the Dover Demon. There is a suggestion that the creature was actually, actually just a young mu- moose. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> Gosh, sorry. <laughs> In the dark, with such brief sightings, it's possible that its head was perceived as something strange and unusual. I can totally see how you could Which think it was I a moose. Which I could definitely see that, but moose the way... Weird. Yeah, but the way that it was described as walking on two feet... But maybe it was on four feet and you could only see the two if it was really facing him. Like, yeah, dead on. Guess. I'm just playing but, a skeptic Yeah, here. that's true. I think they saw <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I think they saw, but... I, I know, I, the long spindly fingers, yeah. like, you know, it climbing on a rock, like... Yeah. I'm like, I don't think moose... Well, I mean, they can do that, but that would yeah. be a pretty acrobatic little moose to be wandering around. Mm. It's also in Dover. Like, is there, a, is there a moose population in Dover? I don't know, but, like, I mean, one wandered down once from Vermont into my town in Connecticut, and we had to chase it around for a while, and then put it back up in Vermont. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had a bear on the Cape, so anything's possible. Yeah. Yeah, the bear that tried to come across <laughs> yeah. the bridge. The bear really wanted to no, vacation here. Uh, it succeeded and ma- it? managed to get Did to it? Provincetown. Oh, yes. my gosh, you made it all the way to Provincetown? Yes. Good job, bear! <laughs> oh my gosh. I should tell it to the bears that live in my neighborhood. 
right? Yeah. Bear, please. <laughs> well, they live in, they live all over the place in Connecticut, but they're oh. cute. It's, it's deadly, that's... but cute. That whole story is just super spooky to me. The, yeah. Just the idea of like you know driving at night and, and you seeing see that like and your friends are there, but your friends don't see it, and then you're just left sitting there gripping the steering wheel in a white knuckle grip, like oh. What well, did I, I see? would prefer my friends being there and thinking that I'm crazy than being alone. Honestly, see, I'd rather be alone because then I wouldn't feel bad about like flooring the gas and just going. <laughs> And I'd be terrified the whole ride to wherever I was going, though. <laughs> it's I mean, following me. <laughs> just pull it to a gas station and run in and just be like, please let me stay here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> For five minutes. <sighs> There's so many interesting things. Pulling into a gas me. station, that's like the beginning of a horror movie. I'm sorry. Like, oh, I'm going to go into this gas station. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I never said I would survive a horror movie, only that I like them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. So, moving on, um, we're going to go a lot broader with this. So, we're not focusing on one specific sighting. We're going to focus on a location. Um, and my, um, my misspeaking mis- earlier, uh, saying that I went to school in Bridgewater, I also, uh, I, like I said, I went to school at um, Bridgewater State University. And it was there that I learned about, which it's very funny. Like, oh, I, I yeah. went to this college town and I learned about Nessie. You have a lot of, like, connections Nessie, yeah. to different things that are... Yeah. And in Bridgewater, I learned about the Bridgewater Triangle. So this one's massive. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, again, this is one that I really had to cut down on information because it was just getting a bit much. But, um, and again, I could also go into each of these individual places or creatures, um, and get more information about them, but I'm gonna try and do a whole overview of the Bridgewater Triangle. So, um, the Bridgewater Triangle refers to an area of about 200 square miles claimed to be a site of alleged paranormal phenomena. This has ranged from UFOs to poltergeists, balls of fire, strange orbs that weave through the trees, and other spectral phenomena, Native American ghosts, unmarked black black helicopters, Satanic rituals and cattle mutilation, various Bigfoot-like sightings, giant snakes, and thunderbirds. <laughs> so this is just Whoa. scratching the surface. Yes. So all in this, these uh, that's the kitchen just, sink. Two hundred square miles. Yeah, just just throw them all in there. <laughs> um, so specific boundaries of the Bridgewater Triangle were first defined by cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, which I think we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep. Talking about the what cryptozoology term, yep. was. Yep. Um, in the 1970s, when um, his book Mysterious America, uh, and then his, in his book Mysterious America, he wrote about the Bridgewater Triangle, which encompasses the towns of Abington, uh, Rehoboth, and Freetown, is the point of the triangle. And then within that, um, it has Brockton, Whitman, um, all versions of Bridgewater, mm-hmm. West East, um, uh, Middleborough, Dighton, Berkeley, Raynham, Norton, Easton. Lakeville, Seconic, and Taunton inside the Triangle. So there's a very large amount of uh, little towns all, all spread. Is that how you say it? Seconic? I have no idea. Seconk? Seconk? Seconic? So, I don't know. Um, there's so many weird names yes, of towns. I, in like Gloucester <laughs> should be Gloucester. Gloucester. Yeah. Or something. Worcester. 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 Yeah. Worcester. Worcester. So, but no one says park the car in Harvard Yard. No, no, no one, one does it because you can't park the car in the Harvard Yard. Yeah, there is no way to do that. <laughs> um, so is, if khakis, I pronounce that, if I—that's oh the best way to do it. Actually, you tell them to say khakis. Yes. It's khakis. Yeah, khakis. 
<laughs> that's that's the accent if you're trying to do it. Khakis. Oh, yeah. Khakis. Um, car keys. Car, oh, gosh. So, um, if I pronounced it wrong, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for those of Seacock. Um, on the morning of May 10th, 1760, witnesses reported seeing what they described as an inex- inexplicable sphere of fire in the Bridgewater and Broxbury areas that was even brighter than the sun. Hmm. That's just one thing. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm actually, I forgot to preface this, but I'm going to go through a, a few of these reports and um, comment them as, as needed. Okay. <laughs> so, apparently a giant sphere of fire. Who knows what that, what's that about? But if there were multiple witnesses in, in two different towns, I mean, that's pretty interesting. That is interesting. Um, so, and then I'm going to focus on a couple of uh, locations. So, the first one was Dighton Rock. People of unknown origin cards, figures of people, animals, and symbols into the flat side of its this trapezoidal boulder, roughly the size of a small Volkswagen. The origin and meaning of the markets have been the subject of debate for centuries, with theorists attributing the, uh, the petroglyphs, I think is how you pronounce it, to Native Americans, Phoenicians, Norse, colonial Portuguese, or even medieval Chinese sailors. So there's actually a... Uh, museum there now that you can go and visit, but you have to. I think you have to schedule a time to go and see this rock. We still have no idea who made these markings, which is amazing to me. Like we, like there's been uh, no. archaeologists that have yeah. that have been studying it. They don't know who it's from. Um, there was there was an interview, um, I believe, from a Wampanoag who said that it doesn't look anything like um, like the history of of um, of their their drawings and the creations. They never actually usually contained a humanoid figure hmm. these did um and there was a bunch of there's a yeah. lot of different speculation again hmm. <laughs> very wide variety of different possible peoples hmm. that um that, that could have done this um or maybe not even those that are listed so we really don't know what's going on there hmm. so next up is the taunton state hospital so this oh, is yeah. a, <laughs> yes <laughs> so again yeah, this is very quick quick um, blip about that but visitors have reported strange happenings including having their shoulders and legs touched and pulled when entering certain areas of the hospital there were areas of the hospital that were allegedly used by satanic culture in the 1960s and 70s so that's a really quick blurb about it but there's we could do a whole thing on the taunton state hospital we could do a whole thing <laughs> from you know concerning medical practice to every, like there was this is a whole you know very very old um and uh i think uh, the ghost hunters have actually gone there yeah. a couple yeah. times oh, yeah. and they've they've recorded a lot of things so that one is believed to have a lot of activity in just google it if you want to be unsettled people it's pretty a lot of those though are very unsettled. yeah they were really concerning um Again, we could do a whole episode on that. So. Maybe we should. Maybe. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> October is pretty much done, but we'll see. Eh, just keep the spooky up. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> um, next up is Profile Rock. So this is in the Fall River Freetown State Forest, the largest in the state, and um, a location that has been tied to some grisly murders, body discoveries, and rumors of a satanic activity. Some paranormal experts argue that there is a strong negative energy that encompasses the forest and is the reason for the strange happenings there. Others believe that uh, the forest is simply so accessible just off Route 24 and Assinant and so fast that people in surrounding towns utilize it to cover up their crimes. Hmm. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on there too. Again, a lot of these things could really just be focused on like full, full on things, but I, I wanted to make it short 
well, shorter than it is. <laughs> yeah. Because this really goes on. Um, so at the opposite side of the forest is the Assonet Ledge. Um, and that has its own set of legends. The remote location has reportedly been the site of ghosts standing up on top of the ledge and leaping before disappearing. In a recent presentation in Dighton, John Brightman from the New England Paranormal Research Group reported that he broke down on top of the ledge, later realizing that a spirit told him to jump or leave. That's unsettling. Terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of ghost sightings. Hmm. And then nearby, spooky, 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 <laughs> on uh, Copica Road, Travelers have reported a truck driver following them too closely and honking the swarm. Oh my god! Making wild motions with his arms, and then the truck disappears. No, that's like the spooky ghost story you tell around the campfire when yes. you're a kid, right? Yes! That's awesome! So this is where it comes from, or part of where it comes from in this area? I, I, mean, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's this, so this cool. could be that's a so legend cool. that's a lot so, of places, so. right? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but that's so neat. But can you imagine, like, that would be absolutely terrifying. Like, you're just. I have a story, sort of like that. You do? Yeah. Oh. Do you want to tell it now or do you want to wait? Or no? Uh, oh, wait. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, keeping with the road theme, um, there's a stretch along Route 44 in Seekonk where the red-headed hitchhiker has become a phenomenon. Motorists have reported seeing a man with long red hair and a full beard walking around along the roadside. But when they stop to pick him up, the man disappears. Others have allegedly reported driving through the spirit and even having picked him up before his disappearance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Terrifying. Terrifying. Nope. Next up, within the Bridgewater Triome, the one-room Horbine School located in Rehoboth. Re- oh, gosh. Um, another... Another, uh, another lovely New England name. <laughs> yeah. um, it's said to be haunted by its former inhabitants. Born... Not born... Built in the 1840s, the school was in active use until 1937. Over the years, visitors have reported hearing voices and other spectra in the school. And uh, some believe the spirits were awakened when the the structure was renovated in 1968 to celebrate the town's anniversary. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. This one's really fun. So, um, Hockamuck Swamp. So, this is going to... (laughs) And uh, it goes over the next couple of, um, of instances. So... This is the largest swampland in New England at 5,000 acres. That's amazing. It's insane. It really is. Um, I didn't even know we had a swamp. Oh, yeah. I don't, like, I don't know. I may have just never even heard of it. I love swamplands. They're so cool. I know, There's right? so many cool things that live in there. <sighs> well, I mean, <laughs> to, na- to name a few cryptids, um, um, it's been home to a mysterious 8,000-year-old Native American burial grounds. And when dis- apparently this is a this is a lore I don't I couldn't really find anything backing this up, okay. but it's fun to kind of think about. <laughs> um, so when this uh, the ground was discovered by archaeologists, their bodies disappeared upon excavation. Okay. <laughs> um, the dense surroundings mean that it's a very difficult place to navigate, which leads some to believe that certain creatures would lurk in the swamp undetected. The Wampanoag tribe gave the name Hamahawk, which, or Hawk, Hawkmock, I'm probably butchering the name, I apologize, um, which means the place where spirits dwell. That's not, mm. yep. That's exactly what it says on the tin. Yeah. Yep. And then colonial settlers called it the Devil Swamp. So we've got, 
two, you know, Why? completely different groups of people. Why? <laughs> Not liking this place mm-hmm. at all. Um, so some of the strange sightings reported here include various flying creatures and ghosts, including Bigfoot sightings. So we're going to just jump right into Bigfoot sightings. Which, again, I didn't realize that Massachusetts had any sort of Bigfoot sightings, but here we are. <laughs> um, so there's been several reported sightings of the Bigfoot-like creature in the Triangle, um, like I said, near the Hockamock Swamp. According to the book Weird New England, the creatures are generally calm. But at one point in the 1970s, one went haywire, killing pigs and sheep before or belonging to local farm- farmers. Um, after that, police with attack dogs searched the swamp for two days, but found no sign of the Bigfoot creature. Oh so, my gosh. That's concerning. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of animal mutilation. There's like a whole section on that, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, Thunderbird sightings. So you might recognize this, this word. This is from, mm-hmm. I know J.K. Rowling is using this as one of her, um, her houses in, um, Native American in folklore, Ilvermone. Right? And it's, uh, yes, it is Native American fol- folklore, I believe, or I know the, the Pukwudgie was, but I don't know about the, um, the Thunderbird. Um, we're going to pause just for a second. We'll be right back. We're back. Right, we're back. Um, <laughs> So, um, I did just a quick search. I don't know. Um, I think it, it, I did see Thunderbirds as a in Native American mythology, but I couldn't see anything in Massachusetts um, in my quick search. If I'm wrong, let me know. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so, Thunderbirds are giant birds or pterodactyl-like flying creatures with the wingspans 8 to 12 feet and that are claimed to have been seen, again, in the Hockamock Swamp and neighboring Taunton. In 1980, Boston Magazine reported that Police Sergeant Thomas Downey spotted a six-foot-tall winged creature while driving late at night on a country road. Some paranormal aficionados asserted that this was the mythical Thunderbird prominent in American mythology. Um, It's really, really interesting. (laughs) Apparently, it can, like, uh, control the weather... Um, there's a lot of um, it, it, it's rain. in the mythology. Um, rain. rain, I think, yeah. also look electri- uh, um, lightning shows. Lightning, kind of things like that. Um, oh, I see. But um, I, I didn't do as much information or as uh, so much um, uh, digging into like that. Again, there's this is <laughs> in order to keep this as detailed as possible, but also as short as possible. It's, you know, I wasn't able to do very much. So next up is UFO sightings. So in 1760, was the, it was the day for the very first documented UFO report in the world. It was sighted directly over the Bridgewater Triangle. Then in 1908, local papers reported on another UFO sighting. In 1968, several witnesses allegedly saw a large orb floating in the trees in the woods of uh, Rehoboth. In the 1970s, UFO sightings were frequently reported in area newspapers, and in fact, in 1976, two UFOs were seen by witnesses to land on route along Route 44 in Taunton. Again, Route 44 seems to really mm. pop up a lot. Yeah. Um, a Bridgewater policeman also reported seeing a UFO in 1994 in the town of Raynham. Oh, hey, I was alive in that time. Oh, in yeah. 1994. I was almost alive. <laughs> um... So, and then lastly, we're just going to wrap this up. Um, just spooky, spooky stuff. Um, there was animal mutilations found all over the place. Um, various, various incidents of animal mutilation have been reported. 
Um, it's particularly in Freetown and Fall River where local police were called to investigate a mutilated animals believed to be the work of a cult. Two specific incidents in 1998 were reported in which a single adult cow was found butchered in the woods. Um, and the other in which a group of cows were discovered in a clearing, um, mutilated as if part of an animal ritual sacrifice. I don't know if this maybe bleeds into the That's apparent... Story. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this bleeds into the um, the idea of Bigfoot. Mm. Uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Um, but I like cows. I don't want... I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't like a lot about cows a lot. They're cute with their mm. soft little faces and their yeah. eyes and how sweetly they look at you and then they stand in the middle of the road and sad now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's all I have for uh, the Bridgewater Triangle. It's really crazy when you get yeah. into it. Like, that's just, this is just this very small area. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's With here. all of these things happening, and there were other things as well. Again, I could have gone on. Um, there were just, you know, and, and there's, they're actually, this has gotten, gotten at least popular enough for it to become more into the mainstream. I saw that, you know, it looks like um, FX is developing, uh, like, a, like, it's like a horror thriller called oh The Bridgewater gosh. Triangle. And there was supposed to be, like, a series or something, maybe a limited series based on it as well. So, cool. like, that's going to be really fun. <laughs> that will be interesting. I'm so curious. Um, I'm curious to know, like, what the will include. I want to learn more. Food. Yeah. So um, But, yeah, the, the it's just, it was really, really interesting to look through. And, I again, I had known about it, um, and I knew that apparently creepy things were supposed to happen in the Bridgewater Triangle. Especially, you know, being being uh in bridgewater this is so <laughs> for a extra while. i know but um but then reading through i was like wow this is a lot <laughs> this, this, it's a lot that that's that's a the lot. polite way to put it yeah yeah oh, so man. i mean it, 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 let's just you know we're gonna eventually have to just take a trip over there i so. think so i think so route 44 here we come yes <laughs> watch out for truck drivers and uh, just don't no, pick up you. any hitchhikers no, thank you <laughs> My mama taught me not to. Yeah. <laughs> mama didn't raise someone who's not going to survive the horror <laughs> movie marathon this would be. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, that was uh, Believe. Yes. Thank um, you for sticking it out with if us. If you stick, stuck around, wow. <laughs> I mean, you are... This was a long episode. I don't know if we have an exact time count because we had to stop and start a few times, but um, this is... This has this been a lot. This is a lot. <laughs> this was fun, though. Yeah. I'm bone tired right now, yes. but this is really fun. I think my voice will not recover. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need so much tea when I get home. <laughs> so much tea. Yeah. But you guys, you're awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. We've got one more episode for our spooky October-themed episodes. Yes. Um, that's coming up right around Halloween. So... Um, Get ready yeah. to hear about the history of smallpox on Cape Cod and where you can still find some of the cemeteries today if you wanted to go take a look. Yeah, Jamie and I actually went out to one of the ones that is kind of being reclaimed by mm-hmm. the wilds at this point. It's definitely reclaimed. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, we'll but, talk um, more about it. We'll we'll talk about it when we when we get there. It's actually it's a really sad part of Cape mm-hmm. Cod history, I think, but it's also an important part of Cape Cod history. Absolutely. And, it is spooky. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. All right, folks. Yeah. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Bye.